What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. What does it mean to overcome? But even more importantly, what does it mean to overcome and lead? That's what we're going to talk about on episode 160 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you, is we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the spaces and the places that God has put us. You know, the longer you are in leadership, I think the more you begin to understand until you sit down and hear someone's story, you just don't know. For 35 years, people have walked through malls all over America and walked by Auntie Anne's pretzels. I've stopped in many of them. I've smelled all of them, just deliciousness. But what I didn't know was the story behind behind Anne Byler. It's an incredible story of loss, pain, and despair that turned into hope, freedom, and healing. Today, I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you faced. I don't know how desperate you found yourself at times going, there is no way out. I'm just telling you, from losing her 19-month-old daughter to just the, the tragedies that she has walked through, to who she is today as an overcomer, today's a special one. So I don't know where you're listening from. I'll tell you this today. Inspiration is the word of the day. Anne Byler's story is inspiring. It's going to be one you're going to want to share. It's going to be one you want your friends to hear. It's going to be one that when you've got friends going through a tough time, you're going to go, you need to hear this story. So I want you to pull up a chair. And I want you to listen in to the amazing story behind the successful Auntie Anne's pretzels from Anne Byler. Listen in. Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is beyond an honor to have you. Well, I am grateful, as always, to be able to share my story one more time. And I am so thankful that you invited me, Mike. Thank you. Well, your pretzels, Aunt Annie's pretzels, Annie Ann's pretzels have added a lot to my figure that I have here. (laughs) And so (laughs) I just want you to know, but what I love about your story is long before all of that, your story was at work, wasn't it? Yeah, it sure was. So tell everybody a little bit about growing. You might be the first person I've ever met that grew up in the area that you grew up in. Tell everybody a little bit about where you grew up. Uh, Yeah. So growing up in the Amish culture um, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania was a, I want to say a very safe environment for me, mom and dad and eight of us kids. And uh, growing up on the farm was obviously uh, where I learned uh, how to work very hard 
and how to persevere. And I've always said that an entrepreneur, a true, a successful entrepreneur uh, does what other people don't feel like doing. And so I learned at the farm that, you know, I had to do what I didn't feel like doing when mom and dad had a task for me. Uh, there was no complaining. I didn't like talk back to my parents and, and whine and, and moan and groan about what they asked me to do. That was unacceptable behavior, which back in the era, I think that's not just an Amish culture thing. I think it was the area and the era in which we lived and any farmer, uh, anyone that's grown up on the farm knows that you just do a lot of stuff you don't feel like doing, but really um, I honestly truly believe that that, was is what set me up for success much later on in life, even though that's not what I was working toward. My goal in life was to please mom and dad. Mm. I loved my parents. Um, they were not taskmasters. It, it's just in that culture, it, it was just kids learn how to work when they're little. You, you learn it in the kitchen and then you learn it in the garden and then you, you know, learn discipline by going to school and then you learn how to work in the, in the, how to milk cows and how to plant corn and how to, so it's a gradual thing. So by the time I was 12 years old, um, I was uh, grown up enough and uh, I had enough of um, experience with my mom in the kitchen that she would leave a note on the dress, a note on the kitchen counter when I got home from school every Thursday night for about two years. And I was 12 years old at the time. And she had a list that said, Annabeth's, um, here's the list of pies I want you to make so that we can take them to market tomorrow morning. So I get home from school at 3.30 or four o'clock and I have this list. And I cannot tell you, and mom uh, was the only time that she would be gone was one night a week for a couple of years. Mom and dad went to a farmer's market in Philadelphia because they had fallen on hard times and the farm was not giving them enough. Uh, we weren't making enough money to survive. So they went to, to marketing and that's what I did. And I remember my many times uh, I missed mom. I could still feel that <laughs> I I still feel the sadness in my heart. Now it sounds silly all these years later, but it was such a, um, a, a pivotal time in my life. I was 12 and 13. And when I went down the steps into the farm basement and there was one little light hanging above the, where I was working, one little electric light, um, I, I would cry going down the steps very often because I didn't want to do what I was asked to do by mm -hmm. myself. I wanted my mom there. My point about all that is I learned at a very young age, if you want your kids to, you know, learn to persevere, teach them when they're little. Don't please, mm -hmm. please don't wait till they're 18 or 21. <laughs> I, I don't, it's almost too late then. And That's I right. so appreciate my mom and dad for teaching me the value of perseverance. My goal, Mike, was to please mom and dad and to honor God and to get along with my family. And one day I wanted to have my very own family. So we grew up in the Amish culture. Mom and dad had a horse and buggy until I turned three. And then they went to the black car Amish or the Amish Mennonite church where we were allowed to have a black car, electricity. And uh, my dad was able to farm with tractors. That was the, it was a big deal. Like we were moving on up for sure. Mm, mm. And mom and dad, of course, leading the Amish culture and the Amish church. And still we stayed living in that culture uh, all of my growing up years. So 
the, the shunning part of it was very tough for my mom in particular. But you have to understand this about the Amish culture is that it's all about faith. It's all about family and it's all about community. So when you leave the Amish uh, church, so to speak, and still live in the area, you know, there's a, there is a time of shunning, which I won't go into all of that, but um, over time, you have to understand family is more important than anything to an Amish family. And over time, then my mom and dad were, you know, part of the family again. And I, I remember some of those things, but ultimately what I remember is my mom and dad going to his parents again and how my grandparents were old order Amish and all their siblings. And there was nine in my mom's dad's side, 11 in my mom's side, all of them eventually like we're family. So the shunning part, even though it's kind of talked about in the world and in movies and all that, um, depending on what part of the Amish culture you came from, uh, where uh, geographically, some are more strict about that and mm -hmm. others more lenient. So my experience has been, uh, it was all restored in my mom and dad's, both of our families. And, you know, um, so that's in a, in a nutshell, that's my culture. And growing up at a very young age, then <clears throat> I married my husband. We met when I was 16 and he was a, a Amish guy. And I loved him because he was tall, dark, and handsome. He was an Amish guy that knew how to work really well. <clears throat> and he loved God more than he loved me. I knew that. And that was really, <clears throat> excuse me, that was really important for me uh, because I knew if I married a man that loved God, knew how to work hard, and came from a culture similar to mine, that we might live happily ever after, right? So I was 19, Jonas was uh, 21 when we got married, which is very common, very typical. And let me tell you, I was ready to get married. I knew how to keep house. I knew how to make money. Mm -hmm. I'd worked all my life. I, I knew how to pay bills. I, there was just, it was such a great foundation. And I thought that our marriage, which was our dream, was just to, uh, have a family, serve God, work in the community, and live happily ever after. So that's my life uh, until hmm. um, we were not prepared for the tragedy that, that we experienced. And we've been married about seven years. And our sweet little Angela Joy, we just, um, September the 8th, we just celebrated her 47th uh, anniversary when she went to heaven. Uh, Angie was killed instantly, just uh, about 100 feet from our double wide trailer at that time on my mom and dad's property, where my sister was driving a farm uh, equipment and she drove over her accidentally and Angela was killed instantly. So, um, you know, I can tell that story knowing like that there's many, many people mm -hmm. who've experienced trauma, sure. tragedy that don't know how to move. It freezes you. Like you trauma is like, you, you don't know how to move forward. And, and you had a, and I would love to camp in on that, Miss Ann. You had a faith then a growing faith. I know y'all had gotten involved in a church there in your community. What were you not prepared for? So tragedy strikes, You've grown up around faith. Now you have a growing faith. You're married. You love your husband. What did that trauma and tragedy do to you that you said, I just wasn't prepared for this? Well, 
so we were taught that, you know, if you obey all the commandments, <laughs> all 10 of them, yep. you know, uh, that God would be pleased with you. I mean, they didn't say that, but it's just, it's just kind of the way that it, it, it came across in, in the teaching and, and the culture and live a good life and God will bless you. And so during those early years of our marriage, my, my theology was that life is good mm-hmm. and God is harsh because I knew that if I displeased mom and dad or God, that they could be upset with me or even angry at me. And so life was good. And God was harsh. That that's what I truly believe. Now I know that is not truth today. And so over seven decades later now, what I know, Mike, is that life is hard and God is good. So I don't know that you can ever be prepared for trauma, but I really truly believed at that time I was doing it all right. I wanted to be a good girl ever since I can remember. I just want to be a good girl. My dad never spanked me. So in that way, I guess I was successful. I never went out. I never was bad. Like what's bad. I don't know, you know, but um, I I always wanted to, to, to live a good life. Mm -hmm. And um, I believed if I did that, then, then God would be pleased and nothing bad would happen to us. So I honestly feel like that was kind of the foundation for my, for my disappointment. Mm. When I finally experienced a tragedy, suddenly I was at the height of my spiritual walk (laughs) with God at that time. And when Angela was killed and the trauma of it all, I mean, the only thing that I could believe, right. Was that why, and what did I do wrong? I mean, Mm. what, why is God punishing me? And if so, then what for? And now I speak and I do, I, I, I talk about that whenever I go out and speak. It's so, that is not the way God, that's not how he loves us. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, God is, is good. And that's what I know. So what I know at seven decades later is that life is hard and God is good. And I'm not confused about that anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad because pain happens to all of us. I mean, the tragedy and traumas of life are like two, it takes your breath away. You're stunned. You're shocked. Like, where do I go? Who do I turn to? And so it was in that, that mode of thinking that I, I, I just went silent and I isolated myself to the point where I kept going to church. I did all the right things. I did everything the way I'd always done it. I never changed anything outwardly, but inside I was dying a little more every day and nobody noticed the tragedy. Dr. Dobbins says is not in dying, but it's what dies inside of us Mm. while we live. That's the tragedy. And Ann Byler was dying inside and Jonas and I were no longer connected, um, trying to keep our heads above water and not be mad at each other, not be too sad. I didn't want anyone to feel sorry for me. So I began this whole life of pretending. And, so uh, in in that season, and I know you and and Jonas probably handled it very different ways. And I know that's always a a a, a point of contention with couples that especially a tragedy right. where you lose a child like that. Are you, and I would love to know because you just celebrated, do you feel like you are over? losing her now how how has that pain healed but yet left a wound that is a a wound you remember of what you had how did how does that work for you how did that work well you know you you never get over it Mm. but 
what you do is you learn how to manage your your uh, feelings, your emotions, and you learn how to remember without being mad. Uh, you learn how to re remember without blaming God. You learn how to remember the the honestly the experience itself um, is so etched in my memory that it's like it happened mm. yesterday. Mm. So. Um, You, you, Jonas said some time ago, now Angie's been gone 47, 48 years. And you might say, huh, wow. Well, it's not like that. Like uh, not too long ago, Jonas said, you know, hon, I used to think about Angie and I wish she was here. Mm. But he said, now I miss her. Mm. When I think of her, I wish I was there. Mm. So wow. Your, your wow. perspective about what happens to you over time um, it changes. It doesn't change the facts about what happened, but it does change the way you begin to think about it. So I, I don't feel the pain in my heart, you know, about losing Angie. I, I feel the missing her, which yeah. is sadness that I feel often, but it doesn't overtake me anymore. And that, and that pain, and you said this earlier, that pain is such a part of your story because that pain and that distance that was created between you and Jonas, which so many people go through that during those seasons, that distance, there was even more distance that was created because you went somewhere that should have been a safe place yeah. for help that turned out not to be a safe place. Talk with us a little bit about what happened that even drove that wedge even further between you guys. Yeah. Well, I think when it's common when, when you experience tragedy and trauma that you're you're in this this state of mind where you're in shock. And it can it can be for a long time. It is different for different people. But over time, I realized that I'm not going to get over my sadness. I honestly felt like if I prayed hard enough, prayed long enough, like God would just kind of uh, in at some time, I guess I thought I would wake up one morning and my sadness would be gone. But instead, as months went by, I was not able to talk about, we didn't have grief shares or I didn't even read a book about grief. Um, it, there was there was no support. Nobody talked to us about Angie. And I didn't want to talk about her because I, I felt like if I brought it up, then I'm then people feel like I, I, I need them to feel sorry for us. But but inside of me, I, I was bursting with just mm. anxiety. I, I had to talk. I didn't know how. And so I went to my pastor about five months after she was killed and I talked to him for about an hour and I was feeling the, wow. Oh, I do know. I do have a vocabulary. I can talk about this if somebody would listen and he listened very well. But when I left his office, as I was opening the door, he uh, took advantage of me physically and I can go into detail about all that. That's, that doesn't matter. But what I didn't know was it's it's, it's it was abuse of spiritual power because I had no idea about sexual abuse. I, I didn't I didn't even know about that. Like, yeah. OK, so when that happened to me, when I walked out, he made me promise never to tell anyone. Well, mm -mm, he's my pastor. And like, oh, OK, OK. You know, I don't know who's going to believe me if I tell. So I walked out of the office and I remember cleared. I, I remember the, the dress I had on exactly where I was. And as I'm going out to my car, I decided I will never tell anyone what he just did to me. Well, what I didn't realize at that time, that was a choice that I made. Mm. I made that choice and choices. <laughs> 
are what create our life. I mean, you know, the choice I make today is the life I will live tomorrow. I had no idea that that choice would keep me in an abusive, a sexually abusive relationship uh, with my pastor for about seven years. But it's because I made that choice. Now, I can't say, looking back, I can't say, oh, well, if I would have done that, whatever. No, I, I believe that God takes all the pain, all of the, the guilt, all of the shame, all of our badness, <laughs> and, and he can redeem all of it. That's you right. know, but when we choose to, and, and that choice then, Mike, took me into the dark, what I call the dark world. I didn't know anything about the dark world, but I can tell you this now from my experience. When you make a choice that takes you into the dark world, rather than living in the light and being transparent and open and authentic, and authentic, uh, the other coin, other side of the coin is going into secrets, hiding eventually into the dark world, and that's what I did. And I stayed there. And let me tell you, when you go into that world, the evil one, he will he will give you all the tools that you need to stay there and nearly destroy you. I lived in that world. And for nearly seven years, at the end of it all, I was a broken, completely a shell of a woman. I was unlovable. I believed all of the lies he told me. I believed that I was unlovable. I was unforgivable. And I was unchangeable. That's what I knew. So God took this broken vessel, me. And all along, he had a plan. Hmm. And out of our pain, our purpose was born. Mm. And it was one day as I'm on my knees, like I did every single day, I, w I wept my way through those years, never telling anyone anything. No one, no one knew, but me and my perpetrator and God. And so I would talk to Jesus about this on my knees almost every day. And one day I'm on my knees and, and, and God just was uh, like, get up off your knees and go tell. Mm. Well, now that made me swallow very hard. I bet it did. I started racing. My stomach went in knots. It always been in knots, but it was like this craziness. I can't do this. But somehow, I believe Holy Spirit stays with us, stays within us. We don't know He's there because of our pain. We're like in it. We're, we're suffering and suffocating. But somehow, you give Holy Spirit a moment, just a thought, a moment of your time, and He will give you the courage. And I got up off my knees and I went and I told my husband a whole lot more to that story. But my husband, I, in two sentences, I told him uh, what was going on in my life. And I didn't wait for a response. I didn't give him a hug. I didn't say, forgive me, please. I didn't say, I love you. There was nothing inside of me. I couldn't even talk. Right. I mean, there was nothing left. So I walked away. And that story is the most beautiful story of my entire life is how he responded to me. Um, that night after he came home and after the shock of it all, and he, uh, we exchanged uh, a conversation that changed my life. Mm. What and did he, wh what was it about the fear of that conversation to the reality of that conversation? Oh. What did he model in that moment you were not prepared for your husband? Well, I'm self-loathing. I'm I'm guilty, shame-filled. I'm racked with my body was literally physically falling apart. And I had believed the lie all those years that if I tell Jonas, he will divorce me. If you understand the Amish culture, uh, you cannot get a divorce. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's highly unlikely. But I believe that because we were no, no longer Amish. We were in another denomination. And 
And I believed that he would divorce me. And I still, in spite of all of that, all that had happened, I still, my dream was still to be a good mom. Hmm. My dream was to be a good wife. My dream was to have family again. And I thought that was impossible. And I knew when Jonas would find it out, he would divorce me and then I would lose everything. That's what I believed, firmly believed. When he came home that night, I told him early in the morning, it was around 10 in the morning and he came home uh, around four o'clock. And he said, when the girls are in bed tonight, we're gonna, we need to talk. And I was like, uh, I didn't want to talk about anything, but he said, we won't talk about it now. We'll wait till they're in bed and then we'll talk. Man, I, I mean, I was so nervous from, from four o'clock to nine o'clock. I had to wait. And when we finally started talking, he said to me, "Hun, I know that you've been unhappy. And I know that I always thought it was because of Angie's death. Hmm. But he said, I still, I really want you to be happy. But he said, I want you to promise me one thing. Just promise me that you won't put a note on the dresser in the middle of the night and leave me. I said, well, okay. And then there there was just that gave me a spark of hope. Like, oh, okay. Then he said, and I tell you, I have to tell you that if you decide to leave, just tell me, Hmm. let me know. And then we'll, We'll find you a home. We'll find you a place together. I'll help you pack what you need, but you have to know that you've got to take the girls with you. And wow, that was, that was like, like, like I'm drowning at sea and someone is throwing me, actually a, a boat comes by and picks me up out of the water and pulls me into that little boat. And that's, that was the moment I knew Mike that, wow we have a chance at staying together. And um, that was the beginning. And I often say this, if it wasn't for the fact that I made a confession to Jonas, there would be no anti-ants today. The power of authenticity. Most of us don't know the power of authenticity because we're so busy trying to be what other people want us to be. And in that process, we're living a pretentious lifestyle. And that is not freedom. And where I live today is complete freedom. There is nothing in my life, nothing in my body, nothing in my mind, nothing that I don't bring out into the light. If there's anything, darkness at all, I can't, I can't stay there anymore. Once you taste the free indeed life, the life that you live in the light, you will never, you, I promise, you will never go back into the dark world. But you got to keep practicing this lifestyle. I call it the lifestyle of confession. It's found in James 5, 16. Confess your faults one to another, one to another, face to face, and then you'll be healed. So what we do is we pray. I'll pray for you, brother or sister. I'll pray for you. You know, but we never take the, I shouldn't say never. We don't take the time to hear the That's pain good. and the sin and the suffering, the mistakes, the things that we do that fill us with shame. I don't take the time to listen to you tell me about your sin. All I want to do is pray for you. Hmm. But there's so much more to the life of a Christian. The body of Christ is mo- so much more than praying for each other. It's about being authentic, authentic and real with the people that you love the most. And what you learn is when you do it, you're not alone. There's so many people, they're waiting on somebody to say something, and there is something to say, and to the whole deal, it's not just you. It's 
everybody's got stuff. Everybody. So I want to ask you a question. I've been very curious about this. If that moment never happens Mm. on your knees where you went and told Jonas, what happens to Anne? I would have died physically. Mm. I would have died. There's no doubt in my mind because I was to the point I weighed 90 pounds. I'd been to the doctor a couple of times because my heart was racing out of my chest. I, it was, my heart hurt. And he told me there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just saying secrets kill you literally over time. Now you may live till you're 90 years old and, and, and hold on to a certain, but let me tell you, you will not, it's, you're not living. You're, you're not living. And I've always said when I speak at conferences or wherever I speak, I encourage women. I don't know what it is that you're carrying that you don't want to talk about. Mm. You've carried maybe one year, maybe 10 years. I've spoken to women that have carried things for over 50 years that they've never told anyone. And I can tell you that is not living. That no. is not the life that Jesus died for. That is, he, he, he died so that we could have life. That's right. You know, and, and I, I think that so often we're tricked into believing that nobody will love me if I tell, if they really know me. That was my, that was my yeah. reason, my excuse, my really, I believe that. But what I found out, Mike, is that when you begin to tell your story, people look at you and like, wow, how do you have the courage to, to tell your whole story? Like, well, it's because um, I, I have discovered that as I share my life, my story, my, the pain, the, the, the good, the bad. And the, if I sat on, I mean, if I sat here with you today, Mike, and told you how great my success was, do you know who I would connect with? Like really connect with uh, nobody. Yeah. But when you begin to share your pain and your struggles mm-hmm. about life, there, that's how we connect with each other. And, and really, why is that a surprise? Because in the suffering of Christ, that's how we connect with him. That's right. That's right. So I believe it's in our suffering, in our struggles, in our pain that we, and you may say, well, that's so depressing. No, no. It's, it's where we begin to live. Mm. It's mm. We're bringing, there's another verse that I love, you know, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then, then we'll have fellowship like we're doing right now, one yeah. with another. And then the blood of Christ cleanses us from all Sin, threefold message there. Walk in the light, you'll have fellowship, and you'll be cleansed. And that's what I've experienced. Um, Well, and and going into the business world with all of that experience in, in in my life, I understood. I took all of that with me into Auntie Anne's. I didn't know how to manage that in corporate life. I really didn't. I didn't know what to do with all of that, but I knew one thing. I knew that I could never go back into the dark world and that to live in the light uh, had to be the way I um, managed the company that gave God gave to us. Anyway, and what, I, I, what I love about your story too, Anne, is that it wasn't like you, you have this moment now and you and Jonas begin to heal. And all of a sudden you sit down in your kitchen and you're like, okay, 
I have a master plan at how I am going to make a pretzel, a soft pretzel that everybody, even a guy named Mike Lynch in Ackworth, Georgia, who needs to put on some weight, he is going to eat one of my pretzels. You didn't have this master plan of what you were going to do. Tell everybody a little bit about how you even got started making them and how the business began to grow. Well, again, out of our pain, our purpose was born. And as a wife that was restored, uh, Jesus was my redeemer, but my husband was also my redeemer. Uh, he's the only man in my whole world that loved me when I was completely broken and unlovable. So my response to that was, how in the world can I ever repay Jonas for what he did for me? I'm sorry, you hear my phone dinging right now. Sorry totally about that. Totally fine, totally fine. Um, so, so my goal was to honor him. And I had no idea how, how I would do that. But soon after, about four years after uh, my confession, we moved back to Pennsylvania. At that time, we lived in Texas for 10 years, 1977 to 87. We moved back to Pennsylvania in 1987. And within six months, I had the opportunity. No, I'm sorry, within one month, I had the opportunity to work at a farmer's market uh, that was making soft pretzels. And I worked there for one day and the owner of the store said, I want you to manage my store. And I said, oh, no, I can't. I've never managed the store. I don't know anything about management in business. I can't do this. He said, yes, you can. I watched you work. I want you to manage my store. Well, that gave Jonas then, before we moved to Texas, he was studying psychology. He really wanted to do marriage counseling. Uh, out of our struggles, he wanted other. He wanted to help other people, and I did as well. And so he went for. Uh, he went to Emerge Ministries and did a car, correspondence course and studied psychology for about four years. And when we got back to Pennsylvania, um, everybody just uh, knew that we were moving back into our old area. Everyone knew us. And word on the street was that Jonas Byler will counsel you. And so he was doing it as a free service, and for over twelve years. Uh, Jonas counseled people uh, as a free service, and we had a full counseling staff uh, that was fully funded by Auntie. And the greatest joy of my life was to be able to, to do that for Jonas. But when I started, I had no idea what it was going to do. I had I had no idea. But when I made $200 a week at the very beginning, when I worked for someone, that was just enough for us to, believe it or not, to buy groceries and managed. We managed $200 a week, and that's what we lived on. And he was able to do counseling free, and he did it three days a week. And the wow. other two days, he worked for his dad and made about $100 uh, working for his dad. Um, so we started, so I loved making soft pretzels. I'm like, hmm, I'd never made a soft pretzel in my life. And at that time, I was about 40. And I was going to work for this guy the rest of my life because I'm making $200 a week. He gave me a minivan. I'm like, wow, this is so amazing. And within seven months, we had the opportunity to buy our own store. We bought the store sight unseen at a farmer's market uh, that was very close to our home. And uh, I, we bought it for $6,000 uh, with a loan from my father-in-law because we literally had no money in the bank, zero. We had no cash. We were living paycheck to paycheck, the $200 I was making. When we had the opportunity, I, uh, I made a call to the people. I heard it was for sale. And when they told me what they wanted for the stores, $6,000, I looked at my husband as I'm on the phone. And I said, 
6,000. I mean, that's really nothing for farmers and market stand. And so I hung up and I told my husband, I don't need to pray about this. And he said, well, go ask my dad. I think he'll give you the money for the market. Long story short, we did that. We took the check to the people that sold us their farmer's market. And then we went to look at what we bought. So that will tell you what I know or what I knew about business back in the day. <laughs> the three things we did not have when we started Auntie Anne's, we had no formal education <laughs> and we had no money. When I say this literally, and we had no business plan. God had a plan. Yep. And I will tell you that God works outside the box. We're in this world, we're not of it. But I feel like too often we 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 go into the world for all of our answers and all of our strategy and all of the things that we need to know. But let me tell you, I God works outside of the world's, That's right. I call it kingdom principles. And you dig into Proverbs, dig into Proverbs. Let me tell you, it will give you, I want to say, every answer that you need when you're doing a startup company. So how, how do you think that helped you not having a formal education, not having cool. a business plan, really not even having this match. So I've got a good friend named Tim Elmore that just wrote a book on oh, eight yes. paradoxes. And Tim says, you know, there's the, there's the, the paradox of vision and blind spots that yes. if you have only vision, but you don't have blind spots, you're not willing to try things. How do you think those blind spots helped you in this? Well, honestly, I think, you know, too much and it keeps you from doing anything. Mm. You know, it's too scary. Like if I know too much, I know I can't do that. Right. So in my case, I want to say, I don't like to use this term because it makes me sound like, I don't know, but in my case, ignorance yeah. uh, was bliss. Now I didn't know what to be afraid of. <laughs> I only knew that all I needed to do. And this is, this was my, M.O. was that just do what's in front of you mm. and then you'll know more. OK, I learned that on the farm. Now, listen, I'm all about educating. And as I learned my found my way through, I should say, into Anne's and, and grew in corporate America and in educating myself by reading and all those things, you know, I know a whole lot more today than what I did then. But at that time. I promise you, if I would have known that we were going into corporate America, oh my, ooh, I can feel it in my, in my heart right now. <laughs> if I would have known that we were going to franchise and do an international company around the world when we started, I, I would have stayed in bed mm. because there was no way. There, would, there wasn't a headhunter in the world that would have come looking for Ann Byler to be the CEO of an international franchise company. In fact, there's very few women that have ever done that an international franchise company. So a little Amish girl without the three things that I didn't have, I want to encourage, I, I, I'm saying all this to let you know that the God that we serve is bigger than the world's principles and ideas and all of the latest schemes. He, he's bigger. He's still the creator. He, he didn't stop creating when he was done creating the world. Let me tell you. I mean, there's something inside all of us, I believe. God put us here with a very unique purpose. The number one purpose for all of us is to house God's presence in our bodies. That's the number one purpose for all of his children. And then I think number two, each one of us are called to a very specific 
something for your life. I mean, you can say, oh, well, if I don't do it, God will pick somebody else out. I don't, I don't know. I don't believe that. I believe that you're called to fill up, not just to fill up space on planet Earth, but to literally yeah. make a difference. Not in a grand and glorious way, maybe like, you know, uh, maybe having a franchise company that goes around the world. It, it can be in being the best mom that you can be raising two or three children that, uh, I don't know, it's bigger, it's God's, um, uh, God's plan for your life and his purpose for your life yeah. does not have to be grand and glorious, but I can tell you it will be glorious. It will be glorious when you understand that you're right where God wants you to be and you're fulfilling a purpose that is that, you know, has only come from him. And then you work it, you work it like That's I right. plowed the field and I worked in the, you work it. Well, that, you know, you think about your story, you go from making soft pretzels for the farmer's market to a international franchise company. I don't even milk and the cow <laughs> pulling weeds, doing your job, persevering around the farm, that day-to-day -day discipline that you learned as a little girl, you still had to execute it now as an adult living this out. How large, how many how many stores did you have before you sold them? When we sold, we had about 900 stores, maybe 925, whatever. But within five years of the conception of Auntie Anne's, we were in Jakarta, Indonesia. <laughs> that is you know, amazing. It's wild. And people ask me, you know, they want a little more details about how did, how did you do that? Well, I mean, I wrote a book about it about a year ago, Overcome and Lead. I mean, it, it's really hard to explain and I do my best, but, but ultimately my, my goal is to encourage people uh, to know, uh, find their purpose and to be willing to pay the price. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a price that you have to pay when God calls you to do something. There's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of days when you want to just, you know, you're done. You, you feel like you can't go on any, any further. Like I spent myself to the point where I was physically, exhausted, emotionally spent, spiritually. Sometimes I felt like I was just completely dead, but th that's where <laughs> I can't explain that. But when you, I, I've always said that when you find your purpose, when you discover your purpose, that's what gets you up every morning. It's, it's like putting gas in the car. Yep. Without the gas in the car, you're never going anywhere. That's Promise. Right. I don't care how nice your car is. But that was like my purpose put fuel in my, I mean, it gave me the energy and the passion that I needed to build this company that I, I never even dreamed of. You know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a phrase, I have a good friend that he uses, and he, and he says, when you know your why, you know your way. Yep, and, uh, and when you, you found that, so here you are growing this. You didn't put your faith on a shelf and go, well, I know God delivered me. I know God forgave me. I know God, but I'm never going to bring my faith into what I do. Your faith is just part of who you are. How did that play out for you when you were bringing all new franchisees and new stores? How did that work? Well, in, in the early days, it was a big deal. Like, uh, I remember one day I had my Bible on my desk and an employee came in. This was back in 1990, 91, maybe. We started in 88. So it was a year or two 
into it. And so an employee came into me and said, now you do know that if your if your Bible is on your desk uh, and somebody is offended by that, you could actually, you know, they could make a complaint. They could, there could be a, some sort of a, a lawsuit against you for, you know, bringing God into the workplace. I'm like, oh my goodness. Wow. It, that was like a, that was like a dagger in my heart. And I almost believed it. I almost believed it. And Jonas and I talked about it for a couple of weeks and we said, you know, discuss how are we going to do this? And I decided at that time that, you know what, God has always been a part of my life. He's done so much for me. He's inside of me. <laughs> like we carry his presence. And I said to my husband, how can I leave God at home and pick up my briefcase and go to work and just leave him at home? I just I told Jonas, I, I don't know how to do that. So the two of us decided that we're going to take God wherever we go because he is he is within us, so we can't leave him at home, but we're going to learn how to be salt and light in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And that came about uh, through direct contact. Uh, one day I was making my rounds in my office, and I wish I did every Monday to meet all of my employees and say hello and see how they're doing. I, it, it was more about the people that was the product. I mean, yeah. it really is in any successful company, I believe it's more about the people than it is the product. And I didn't know that then, but I love my people. And I was coming back to my office that particular day. And I was like, so frustrated. I said, Lord, what do you want me to be? Do you want me to be an evangelist? That, that's exactly how I said it. And instantly I get this in, I want you to be salt and light. Mm -hmm. And I, I literally stopped in my tracks and I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I do that? I'm a doer. I grew up on the farm. Mm -hmm. How do I do that? And he said to me, I will teach you. And that was a moment when honestly, my MO changed. Mm -hmm. I realized that God within me, um, I need to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. I don't have to say everything I know and think and, have an opinion about, which I was really good at that, no. but God helped me to quiet my spirit and, and taught me truly. He taught me how to talk in the workplace. And I can't tell you how that was. I can only, I can only say that I changed the inside of me changed. And eventually that came out in the way I, in my character, in the way I spoke to my employees, but I never once let God out of the picture. We always prayed before every meeting. We, and every employee that came in, I let them know I was a believer and that God is in the workplace here. I, but I didn't, but it was just a part of who I was and part of my conversation. Mm. Everybody was welcome to work at Antian's. It was a very diverse group uh, as we start, even from the very beginning. Um, and I can tell you, I, I, I don't know that I, that I truly offended anyone. If I did, I, I don't know. But I was very cognizant and very aware that I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone. I just want to be salty, yep. which means that you, uh, so light doesn't speak. It only makes things visible. Salt doesn't say a word. It makes things tasty. So I knew it was all about being, and it was all about my character from the internal part of who I was. I had to learn how to be salt and light. Mm -hmm. And over time, you know, I fumbled and I, you know, 
but I learned how to be salt and light. And in that process, Holy Spirit uh, taught me how to speak, how to talk uh, corporately and how to talk as a businesswoman needs to talk and how to, my speech changed over time. You know, and I told you a little about this a little bit before we went on air. I think the word I, I believe that is so much of the fruit of your life is just obedience and that from from that moment on your knee, well, even go back to your childhood, being obedient to your mom and dad, mm. you go through your dark season, but you stayed obedient. You did what he told you to do. You went to Jonas and those doors. The, I, I've got a friend that says the great doors of opportunity swing on little hinges called obedience. And boy, I tell you what, your obedience just kept opening doors at every stage. That obedience to be salt and light, it would have been really easy to go, oh, yeah, you're right. I need to stuff my Bible under my desk, you know, but you didn't. You just lived it and you just showed it. And I love that you've got books. So the first book, you your most recent book is Overcome and Lead. And your other book is how many years old now? Uh, my Secret Lies Within is probably three years old. We, we wrote both of them within the last four years. That's fantastic. Secret We're going to have links to both of those in the show notes. Excellent. That's wonderful. So I want to, you said, I heard you speak and you said this, you said Psalm 40. Yeah. That's your, ver that's your passage. That's, that's, uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. You know, it's found in the Bible, believe it or not, but Psalm 40 verse one through three, uh, I waited patiently for the Lord. You know, all of those years I waited patiently for him to deliver me and to help me. I waited patiently and he turned to me. He heard my cry and he turned to me. And then he lifted me up out of a, a dark slimy pit and he set my feet upon a rock. And he gave me a very firm foundation to stand on. And then he put a new song in my heart, <laughs> a hymn of praise unto God. Many will see and hear, and they will put their trust in him. And then I say, it's my story for his glory. And over time, his glory has become my story. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Oh, my goodness. I remember getting off the call with Ann and going, I, I just had no idea until I studied her uh, researching for the interview and just blown away. But the joy that she lives with now is such a blessing I hope you will pick up her books. I hope you will download her story. I hope that you'll hit pause and share this with friends, whether it's on social media, whether you leave a rating and review, or whether you just take stop and send them this episode. But people need to hear the story of Ann Byler. What an overcomer, but, but not just overcomer, overcome with joy. Mm-hmm. So, so good. Well, in our next episode, we get to sit down with Pastor Stephen Chandler and talk about what it means to stop waiting for permission. It is going to be a fun one. So I don't know where you listen in from today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for sharing. And thanks for being a part. Now, let's go make a difference and live sent wherever we live and lead. Have a great day, everybody. 
Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.